Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. This episode is a special episode. It is part of our Listening and Learning Weekend on Encountering the Scriptures Anew with Jesus as Our Lens. Over this weekend, we were joined by a special guest, Dr. Bradley Jersak. Dr. Jersak joined us from St. Stephen's University, where he serves as the Dean of Theology and Culture. During this session, we experienced some technical difficulties, and as a result, some of the audio from the session was lost. You'll notice a 10-second pause at this moment. Sorry for the interruption, and thank you for your understanding about this. We hope you'll take the time to listen and learn with us. Good evening, everyone. Good to be with you tonight. And for those joining later or watching later by podcast, uh, whatever time of day it is, good morning, good afternoon, good night, that's that's to you. Uh, Welcome to our second listening and learning event. And I'm just going to pray for us. And then I want to give a little introduction uh, to what these weekends are all about. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're grateful that by your invitation we come to learn together. And Jesus, as many of us have been praying over the last number of weeks, we pray for you to be our Prince of Peace over this entire conversation and dialogue this weekend. God, thank you that in your church for thousands of years we've been a, a teaching and learning community. And so much of what makes us who we are in the, in the process of growth in our faith is the chance to come together in community and learn together. And so, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, the one who has called us together, we honor you with this entire weekend. And we pray that as your apprentices, Jesus, we would be shaped to be more like you, shaped and formed more into the likeness of Jesus. And so, in the name of Jesus, I bless each one of you both Here in the room, those joining us online and from wherever you happen to be in the world, the peace of Christ to you. And may you find in these days uh, more love of Jesus awakening in your souls. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome everyone uh, to Stony Plain Alliance Church this weekend. As I said, for our second listening and learning event, back in the fall we had Dr. Ray Aldred here. And he was talking to us about uh, indigenous realities within Canada for the Christian church. And so many of us were encouraged in that. Uh, Here at Stony Plain Alliance, we talk all the time about fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. And that's really the impetus behind these weekends, is we are pursuing fullness of life for everyone. And to listen and learn together is one of the practices of Jesus that we come together to do during these times. There's a, a few values that we have over these weekends that are becoming more and more important to us. And as we talk about these listening and learning weekends that are becoming part of our culture here, there's three terms that we come back to again and again as we think about what these weekends are for and the posture that we take in coming around these tables. First of all, we come with a sense of humility. The fact that you're here means that you know that there's something yet to learn. And that should be the process of every follower of Jesus, everyone in the world, that there's always something more to learn. There's places to explore. And that's a posture of humility. Secondly, we come in a posture of charity, which is that we believe the best about one another as we talk about important things. And charity doesn't always mean full agreement on everything. But in Christian thought, charity is the highest form of love, signifying the reciprocal love between God and people that is made manifest in love toward one another. That's what it means to be charitable. So we have humility, we have charity, and then generosity, which means we enrich one another as we agree to listen well 
and to dialogue in a spirit of love. So that's what these weekends are all about. And we have Dr. Bradley Jersak with us this weekend. He's right down here. We're going to welcome him in a moment. Uh, Bradley is a friend. He's been a teacher of mine, is a current teacher of mine, and a deep encourager in my life. And Brad's here to talk to us about a more Christ-like word, the way we understand the scriptures in the light of Christ. And so let's welcome Brad as he comes to share with us. Yeah. And we're going to pray for Brad as we begin. Uh, Brad, we bless you in the name of Jesus as a brother in Christ, as one who's been invited to come and share from your heart, from your experience and your study, what it's like to walk with Jesus in the scriptures and discover the beauty and love that is to be found there. Brad, we honor you and we give you permission to speak. Uh, we're ready to respond uh, in the guidance of the Holy Spirit to the things that you have to share with us. And we thank you for coming. And so we bless you, Brad. And may this be an enriching experience for you, not just for those who are listening, but for you as the teacher this weekend. Would God strengthen you? Would God carry you along by the power of his spirit? And would you know the love of this congregation, this gathered people here in your life as a testimony going forward? And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just before Brad talks, uh, some of the setup for the weekend while he gets set up here. Uh, he's going to share, Brad's going to share some of his story, and if you're going to keep nodding to make sure I get the schedule right so that we're talking about the right things. Okay. Uh, Brad's going to share some of his own spiritual journey and process of growth that he is currently already in. You're always growing, just like the rest of us. Um, and then moving more into the content of working through how to be good interpreters of Scripture, coming through the story of the road to Emmaus and those that walked with Jesus as he opened the Scriptures to them. And so, Brad, we pass it over to you. We're ready to learn and listen. And thank you for coming. Thank you, Wade. And it's good to be here. Nice to meet you. I'll meet more of you uh, in person as we go through. And, and uh, I'm just really, really excited to be able to share about uh, the topic of how Jesus read his Bible. Um, I've written this book. There's copies out there, if you like, called A More Christ-Like Word. Reading Scripture the Emmaus Way. Um, one, of the, one of the memories I have growing up was that anyone who talked about the Word of God seemed to be talking about the Bible. Whereas the Bible calls Jesus Christ the Word of God. Repeatedly. Dominantly, the Word of God is not a book. It's the eternal Son of God from all eternity who came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and as the Word of God became the last word on what God has to say about Himself, that's why He's the Word of God. It was also by his word that he created all things visible and invisible. That the God who said, let there be light, was enfleshed as a human being. The creator became a creation. God became a human. And that human 
is what God has to say about himself. That's the word of God. Remember John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And it's this word who created all things. And then we read a little further down in the chapter. And this word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. John even goes further in chapter 1. He says, nobody has seen God at any time. Which is a strange thing to say when you think about all the times where you see God in the Old Testament. John knows his Old Testament. And yet he says, nobody has seen God at any time, but God, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. He is what God has to say about Himself. And so very early on, I I recognized that verse to be true, pointing to Jesus as what we called the living Word of God, and then we had the written Word of God, which isn't quite how the Bible talks about it. The Bible will talk not so much about the written word, but as the scriptures that point to the word. They're a testimony to the word. They're a prophecy about the word. And then that word then is spread around. So the word of God also becomes the message or specifically the gospel of Jesus. So the word of God is Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, we'll hear, and the word of God began to spread quickly. Does that mean they were quickly like copying Bibles out? And the Gideons were off in the hotels putting them in the drawers? No, it was the gospel itself as the word. So so we have the word as this living, divine man. Then we have the word of God as the message or gospel about that divine man. And yes, maybe third on the list we would say, And these scriptures testify about him. And therefore, they sort of are the word of God too. So, a big concern I have, and what brings me here to talk about this today, is that as we, we're at a place in our culture where there are those who want to know God, there's there's those who believe in Jesus, and yet something about how we've read scripture has left this book on the shelf getting dusty. In fact, some folks have a bitter taste in their mouths about it, and I don't think the book is the problem. It could be that we've inherited ways of reading it that set us up so that it becomes like an adversary or an opponent or something icky. And I don't think we'll feel that way about it if we read it the way Jesus did. And we're going to learn about how he did that. How the early church, how the apostles of Jesus, and how Christ himself perceived these scriptures. Um, I have always loved the scripture. When I was a very little boy, just learning to read. Oh, before I could even read. My mom would let me listen to Back to the Bible broadcast, Haven of Rest, and Voice of China and Asia on the radio. Do you remember those? I wrote letters to all of them, like I printed the letters. 
Um, and, and so it was a way where I could just not have to go to bed right away, but I'd be in bed right away. It was like her trick to get me to be in bed with the... And I, I remember, I remember listening to the Scriptures, being taught in that way. I remember the night in my bed where they're explaining the Gospel and I'm like, what was I thinking? I should have said yes to this long ago. I'm like six. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. And that's when, you know, I mean, some people even cringe a little when we talk about inviting Jesus in your heart. But I did, and something happened that was very real. And it was indivisible from the message I heard from the Scriptures on those radio shows. So when I began to, to learn to read a little bit, I would take my dad's Bible and I would look at what passages that he had highlighted. In those days, we didn't have the yellow highlighters. It was a red pencil. And he'd very carefully, and I'd just go through and I'd look at all the verses that had jumped out at him. Or we could say that the verses through which God had spoken to him. And in my heart, I thought, I want my own Bible. And so I said to my dad, Dad, I... I want my own Bible. And he said, okay. I said, no, no. I, and something in me, probably performance orientation, <laughs> said, uh, I don't think I should have my own Bible until I have memorized, I used to say, until I've re-memorized 30 verses. And I did have to re-memorize them. <laughs> um, and so I remember the first verse I memorized. Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then, you know, of course, John 3.16. And then, you know, some of the Romans Road passages. And, and like by the time you get to about verse 28, you're looking for Jesus wept. You know, like these are getting hard. I'm, my brain's getting full, right? But I, I, um, I was able to memorize 30 verses and then my dad went and bought me and my brother a Bible. He didn't have to memorize. But, um. And so I got this little red Bible, and then I started to transpose the verses my dad had highlighted. Now I started highlighting them in my Bible. More squiggly, sometimes a blue pen, made a bit of a mess, but like I cared. I especially liked uh, one, there was one page in the Bible that was my favorite, not because of what was written in it, but because every word was in red letters. And I, I believe in those red letters. When the when the living word speaks through these scriptures, I'm like, how can you leave that behind? Unless you haven't met him. But I met him in the book. And I met him in prayer, and he felt this close. He felt closer, than, I mean, than my own heart. And, and so um, I'm just not about to let go of, what I, of the good news of Jesus that I found in the scriptures. And, and it troubles me um, when like people of good faith feel like it's toxic and they need a, to fast from the Bible. I was like, what? I was in a church one day and I, I didn't bring my Bible because I can usually borrow one at the church. That's what I did tonight. It's like heavy to put in my, you know, I have one on my phone anyway. But I get here, can I borrow a Bible? So I get there and I said, can I borrow a Bible? 
And they're like, no, we have no Bibles in our church. Like, you have no Bibles in your whole church? No. Okay. Um, And then someone at that church said, yeah, we don't use the Bible here, really. In fact, we don't have one in our home anymore. And they're kind of proud of it. What's going on? Right? So, now I come from a place where I probably became a bibliolater. Do you know what that is? Where the Bible becomes an idol. I was a Baptist, so it was Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And by calling the Bible the Word of God, you kind of can set it up as the final authority for faith and practice. Wait a minute. Jesus alone is the final authority for faith and practice, not a book about Him. Think about that. I don't know what your faith statement is, but the one I grew up with said that the Bible is our final authority. That's probably creating an idol. But that served me at least well enough to not throw it away. And so it, it grieves me when folks do. It grieves me. When, and, and what I'm discovering is that if I can show them how Jesus read the Bible, some of them, it comes alive again. And that the problem wasn't Scripture, but it was like an 1800s way of reading it. And so um, we're going to talk about that a lot tonight, about the Emmaus way, the road to Emmaus. Oh, could we have the Emmaus icon back up? <clears throat> so on the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus actually begins to train his disciples how to read their scriptures. And it's not what I learned in Bible college. In the 1980s, early 80s when I went, there were kind of two kinds of Bible colleges. There were evangelical, conservative Bible colleges. And then there were liberal Bible colleges. And they were kind of enemies around the Scripture. In fact, there was a a book written called Battle for the Bible. And it's these two sides fighting over how to read Scripture, what to think of Scripture, how to define Scripture. And um, they were actually twins and didn't know it. So I want to read a paragraph from a booklet called uh, The Bible and the Land of Shades. And this is by my godfather, David Goa. I might have him pop by. He's in Edmonton. But he, I, I'll read a paragraph that describes the problem. For the last hundred years or so, a substantial number of Christians have been divided on how to read the Bible. Two schools of thought have emerged, and in no place more strongly than in North America. Evangelical literalists have read the Bible through the 18th century lens of rationalism, reason. If I can just master this text, I'm going to stand over it like it's a frog on a petri dish, and I'm going to begin to dissect the Bible with my scalpel. And we called this rightly dividing the word of truth but we were shredding the poor thing. Often looking for proof texts or what we now call clobber texts. Clobber texts. So I've, got, I've gone on Google. I found my three clobber texts that I can use to condemn somebody who's not like me. And a lot of times back in those days, 
we were especially looking for proof texts using archaeology, history, or science to prove something like that you could fit all the animals in the world in an ark. Adventures in missing the point. But on the other hand, their opponents, the liberal modernists, also using 18th century rationalism, but instead of using it to prove some conservative point, they were using it cynically to disprove or create skepticism. And so they would use archaeology and history and science to basically argue with the other people who were using archaeology and history and science. Each, they, they were in the same courtroom. And it was completely the wrong room. Maybe the wrong building. The fruit of the way of these codependent twins that they've approached their reading has been, has been to deeply limit the spiritual power of Scripture and to frame the engagement with Scripture in ways that have done little to help Christians speak to the need of healing for our world. Rather, they've often extended human suffering by using Scripture to justify actions against communities viewed outside the reach of divine love. And that's the problem we want to address this weekend, but in a positive way. Um, now back to my story. So I began with this love for Scripture, memorizing Scripture, underlining Scripture, and then a, a really amazing thing happened to me. Um, at the age of eight, I convinced my Baptist pastor to baptize me. And that was really rare in that church. Usually they thought, you need to be at least 16. Um, and so he took me aside, and instead of putting me through the regular baptism classes, he gave me like an hour to convince him, and I did. And I, I'll never forget the day I was baptized. The experience of baptism was deeply important for me. In fact, if he had said no, I don't know how I would have reacted. It would have been so grievous. But what I perceived, let's call it, I perceived this, right after my baptism, it felt like I understood the scriptures. It felt like the Holy Spirit was showing me what they meant. It felt easy. It felt like I got it. Now, I could have been mistaken, but I had the sense of illumination. And it was wonderful, and it made me hungry. So my dad comes to my room one night and he says, Hey, uh, Bradley, is there a Bible story you'd like me to read to you? And, um, and I said, Yeah, uh, Paul and Silas in prison. I suppose I had heard it in Sunday school, seen it on a flannel graph. Do you remember those? <laughs> and I wanted him to read it to me. So he read it to me in my new little red Bible. And then I just kept reading. And I read all the way from there to the end of the book of Acts. And then I started over in Acts chapter 1. I read all the way through the book of Acts. And I'm like, wow, does this ever look different than the church I go to? That was disappointing and alarming. But it also made me think, what if, what if we actually followed the ways of Scripture and played out, like we're, we're, had a church that looked like this? 
had a message that looked like this. Because now at this time, the revivalists also started coming to our town. And they were really into Armageddon and left behind and, um, you know, like the Middle East wars were about to usher in the second coming, all of that stuff. And they wanted us to be ready, so it was very moralistic. We'll come back to that later, but it was like, so, you know, Jesus could come back next week. We're going to have Armageddon, so thou shalt not smoke. Like, that's the best you can do? Man. So, um, so they're preaching this stuff, and they're using the Bible in a different way. And to me, it was fascinating. They had charts. End times charts. I love charts. So in some negative ways, I bought into all of that. And um, um, just kept reading Scripture. But I also had the model of my grandmothers. My babichka, my dad's mom, she read the whole Bible through every year. When I try to do that, it just feels like you've got to skim a lot. <laughs> so I'm not sure about that. And I'd, I'd much rather stay a whole month in one chapter or read one verse at a time in Greek, or something like that per, per day. Or, but, but that's what she did. So this was modeled for me. This is my point. I guess, I guess it's partly what led me to want to go to Bible college. And um, at Bible college, where we drove in, we had a sign. And it said, The Word of our God shall stand forever. And I think they meant the Bible, but I don't think Isaiah meant the Bible. He was talking about the promises of God, the covenants of God with us, that you can take my word for it. You have my word on it, right? So this is that kind of, uh, of the promises, the covenants, the gospel of God. And it was really, uh, anyway, we were reminded every time we drove in. Thanks for doing that. We've got a, a, a ruffled up carpet. I was trudging too much. Um, so so we, we would see this, we would see this, and, and I just began to devour every Bible course I could. I, um, I took every single Bible course they offered in class, and I took every single Bible course they offered in correspondence school on the weekends. And, and I, I did them all. And then I did all the theology ones. This was ravenous for this. Now, I had intended to go off to business admin school, but because my marks were pretty good, they made me a teacher's assistant for the Gospels teacher. And he said, do you really want to add numbers for the rest of your life? And it's like, no. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want your job. And he said, then get it. So I, I went on and I did my... Um, I did a couple of MAs, and then I did 20 years of pastoring. And then um, got fried on that. That happened. And I went and did my PhD. And finally, finally, when I got to be like 49 years old, I finally got to teach in a college, Bible courses. So, In fact, you could come study with me. I'm now at St. Stephen's University, we do online classes, ssu.ca. And in fact, some of what I'm going to teach this weekend, I'm teaching in a fuller course this fall called Interpreting Ancient Texts. Okay? Or 
I, I think, I forget what we're called. I always change the name of the course, but it's basically this. And, um, and so I've just never, I, I've just never wanted to walk away from this book, but in fact, I've learned more fun ways to read it, more fascinating ways to read it, and most of those are rooted right in, 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 the, in the Jesus way in the early church. And so some of that you may not have, um, have discovered before or been taught about. I noticed this at, at Bible school. They taught us a course called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a funny word. Hermeneutics. Do you know it actually comes from the word Hermes? Who is a Greek god who would deliver messages from Zeus to the people on earth. That was Hermes. Hermes. He would deliver messages. And we got our, but all it just means is methods of interpreting the Bible. Methods, how to interpret the Bible. But guess what? I read about it. I learned that conservative 1800s rationalist way. We called it the historical, grammatical, literal approach. And what that meant is we were going to read the Bible as history and read it in his, its historical context. That's good. Like you don't just open the Bible to any verse and read it like a fortune cookie. You want to ask, who was it read to? Who was the speaker? What was he doing? What was happening when he said it? That's a good thing to do. Historical, um, uh, grammatical, that just meant read the words. What do the words actually say? What are the sentence? How are they put together? Be, you know, and, um, and then the literal approach, which I'm going to critique later a little bit, not because it's bad, but because it's only the beginning. So what we meant by the literal approach was, well, it says what it means. It means what it says. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And um, you ever seen that bumper sticker? And it's, you know, so, so that's kind of how we read it. And you wouldn't read it. You, you would really care about what the author meant. That's what literal actually means. Find out what the author meant. Don't just make up your own thing. What's the author mean? So reading the history, looking at the words, asking what the author meant. We thought if you just used all the right rules, you would know what the Bible means and what it says. You could master it. Can you think of a more blasphemous degree than the master of divinity? I got one of those. <laughs> Watch out for the lightning. But yeah, with an emphasis in biblical studies, because I want it to be biblical. What did biblical mean? Biblical meant I could go to find my clobber verses, master them, and then use them to set you straight. Take a stand. On what? On the Word of God. Which Word of God? Well, the King James Bible, of course. No. Uh, I was telling Wade earlier, I have a friend, when he was a little boy, he got a preaching gift. But his only model for preaching were the crazy southern revivalists who would come preaching hellfire and damnation. King James only stuff. And he found a cassette tape of him preaching when he was nine. It is so cute and so funny and so tragic. And he was saying, if you're not 
preaching from the King James Version of the Bible, this is a nine-year-old, then you might as well be smoking 100 cigarettes a day. You might as well be murdering one person an hour. You might as well be a Roman Catholic priest. <laughs> oh, dear. And the poor guy, the little guy, you know, you, you just feel for him, right? And then he goes out into the field. He's going to pray in tongues one day to the Lord, because he's a Pentecostal. He's a Pentecostal. He's going to pray in tongues. And out comes a song to Mary. Whoa. When you think the... When you think the worst sin in the world is being a Catholic priest and you start singing songs to Mary, you're a poor little guy. Anyway, um, uh, that's kind of how I hear Scripture preached a lot. How I see it used and misused and abused a lot. In the name of being Biblical. You remember 1 Corinthians 13? If I have know all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, it's worse than dangerous. How many genocides have been committed in the name of God with a Bible under our arms? You may not have heard of him, but there was a guy in England named Oliver Cromwell. He was a Puritan. You know why they were called Puritans? They weren't because they were quaint and came over here to, you know, on the Mayflower. The Puritans wanted to purify the land of those godless Catholics by killing them. With a scripture in his hand, and Oliver Cromwell says, just as Joshua, God sent Joshua to eradicate the Canaanites and cleanse the land. He has called me as his new Joshua to go eradicate the Catholics and cleanse the land. And he committed genocide in the name of God with Bible verses to back it up. That's not okay. And, it, and yet, it's pretty recent. I am now in, a, I'm now in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And I have to confess that in the same way as Cromwell was, now we've got the patriarch of Moscow, the most influential Orthodox leader in the world, developing doctrines, using his scriptures to get in bed with Vladimir Putin and cleanse the land in Ukraine. Not okay! It's antichrist. And it comes down to how he's reading scripture. We better relearn it. And he actually doesn't have an excuse. So, wow, that got dark. Um, Wade, what time is our break? Right now? I don't... Okay, good. All right, so I think, um, I think I do want to show you something on the screen. Uh, let's put the passage up from Luke. So, 
I'm going to call what we're, our way of describing a better way, a better way to read Scripture would be to read it the Emmaus way. What's the Emmaus way? Well, this refers to a, a day on which Jesus runs into two of his disciples. It's on Easter Sunday. He's risen from the dead earlier that morning. He's already appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden. She's run off to the disciples, and Peter and John run back to the empty tomb. I love John. He's like, and the disciple Jesus loved got there first. Just saying. <laughs> but Peter looked in the tomb. He goes in, and, and then John looks in the tomb. And by the way, I got there first. Thought you should know, right? So that's already happened. And, um, and then, this is in the afternoon. And there's two disciples walking on a road to a village called Emmaus, and they bump into Jesus, but they don't recognize him. That tells you something strange about his resurrection. Like, think about this. He was flayed just three days earlier. Friday, at the latest. And, and beaten beyond recognition. And now he's walking with them. So, although he can show Thomas his wounds a week later, in his hands and his side, there was, he's either revealing himself in a different mode of being, or maybe just... Hiding their eyes. We don't really, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. But let's read the passage. This is from Luke. Now that same day that he rose from the dead, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Now, pause. They've been with him three and a half years. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the teachings. They've heard him tell them who he is and what he's going to do. And after all of that, here's who they think he was. He was a prophet. That's, that's it. Well, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they figured he was a prophet. They hoped he was the Messiah. And what is more? It's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Um, so either these folks don't remember or didn't know that Mary Magdalene had already seen him, or they don't count it for some reason, or it's not part of Luke's tradition, but that didn't come up here, did it? 
They just saw a vision of angels in an empty tomb. But they didn't see Jesus. He spoke to them. How foolish are you? How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All comes up a lot there, doesn't it? As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true! The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Let's just leave that up there. So, here's the deal. They didn't know who he was, and they didn't understand the scriptures, and they couldn't understand the scriptures, until he opened it to them. He opened their eyes and he opened the scriptures. And this is important. That the historical, grammatical, literal approach would not help them to see all that the prophets and Moses, later in the chapters he'll say, and the Psalms, and all the scriptures said about him. That they're about him. That Moses was writing about him. That Joshua and Judges and Ruth and Samuel and Kings are about him. That the Psalms and the Proverbs and Song of Solomon are about him. And they always were, but we can't see it until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, opens our hearts, opens the scriptures. You can't get there with 19th century rationalism, whether you're an evangelical or a liberal. You can't see it without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But once you see it, you can begin to learn how to see it everywhere. And that's, we're going to spend a lot of time on that. And it's just so amazing that, that over and over and over again, in the Gospels themselves, it will say, and, they, and we didn't get it. And we didn't know till later. Only after he rose from the dead could we see. But it not it interesting that, that they root this, the, the, the meaning of Jesus' life in the scriptures. So it's sort of like they couldn't see who he was until they saw he showed them where he was in the scriptures. And now the scriptures are all pointing at him. And... Um, Here's an interesting way it talks about that in the Bible and in the creeds. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking to Corinthians in the first paragraph, and he says, 
this is the gospel that we've received, that we're passing on to you, that he died according to the scriptures, and that he, on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. Do you notice he doesn't say that we know that he died and rose again from the apostles? From the eyewitnesses or the empty tomb? We know it from the scriptures. What scriptures is Paul talking about? Our Old Testament. Where does it ever say Jesus, the Messiah is going to die? Where does it say he's going to rise on the third day? Well, we should go look. And we probably won't see it without the, without the Emmaus lenses on, where we're meant to look for it in that way. So I'm excited about an Emmaus way of reading. Now, when I, when I could begin to see that this is how Paul was reading, how he would read the story of, oh, let's say, Sarah and Hagar in Galatians. And he's like, this is totally about the gospel. And you're like, what? How are you seeing that? Or Jesus, and we're going to look at this one closely, Jesus saying, no sign will be given to you but, but the sign of, no, of, of Jonah. And he's like, as Jonah's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. And, and he's like, he thinks Jonah is about him. And it is. And I could have never got that from a historical, grammatical, literal hermeneutic in my conservative Bible college. You can't do it. So I asked my teachers about that in hermeneutics. I said, oh, wise Hermes. Why does Paul interpret the Bible so differently than us? And why don't we try to learn how he did it? And wise Hermes said, we don't really know. We can kind of see how he did it. And, but we really can't emulate him. And I'm like, wrong answer. What we're going to find out this weekend is that not only did the disciples show us how to do it repeatedly, but their disciples explain it explicitly in the second century. And they tell us how to read the Bible the Emmaus way. And they show us how to read it the Emmaus way. And they show us how to, that it can be opened up in a way that we, don't just, we aren't just more clever, but that it actually has power to heal us, to restore us, to drive out our fear that leads to the kind of anger that is polarizing your city, your province, our country, our churches. We, we, um, so, so we probably won't ever heal that by having that 19th century battle between conservatives and liberals. It's not how it works. What we'll do is we'll read the Bible the Emmaus way that's pointing to the eternal word of God who's in our midst tonight, and wants to open her eyes to us. All right? Let's take a little break, and then we'll come back. We've got some stuff to share. For those that uh, may be visiting and don't know, uh, washrooms are out those doors to the left, and there's some coffee on. It might be decaf. It might not. Just drink some, and then you'll know. 
by about 11.30 p.m. Pretty sure it's decaf. Um, but yeah, we're going to take a break. We'll be back at, let me check the time here. What are we at? It is 7.58. So at 8.10, we'll take a 10-minute break and be back and then conclude this evening and come back tomorrow morning. But that'll be 10-minute break. Off you go. Have a good little stretch. We'll and continue. Have you done it about 9? Is that right? A little after 9. Okay. Probably 9.10. Okay. Because we started late. Right. So, Okay. Break time. Welcome back, everybody. Um, so I'd like to do a quick explanation of books. You know, authors aren't fond of self-promotion, but actually, I really believe these books are worth reading. So um, 20 years ago, I wrote a book called Can You Hear Me? Uh, 10 years ago, I revised it. And it's about tuning into the God who speaks. It's the practice of listening prayer. The amazing amazing concept that when the Bible says, call on me and I will answer you, it actually met it, meant it. That when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, he actually meant it. And uh, when he said, uh, behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will enter and I will sup with you and you with me. And it's about intimate fellowship with the person of Jesus, the living word of God. Um, who is found not only in the pages of these scriptures, but in your own heart as your very best friend. And as your very best friend, and as the Word of God, He's able to communicate. I wonder how we would learn how to hear Him in ways that don't get weird and creepy. Well, let me help you with that, with that book. Um, and then... A few months after that came out, my youngest son Dominic took me out to Boston Pizza with a coupon. And we had pizza, and then he said, Dad, when's the children's book coming out? Um, and uh, I said, I don't know. And on my way home, I could read the book in my head. And then the next day, before noon, two of my intercessors from different cities, one from here, called me and said, when's the children's book coming out? So... Children, can you hear me? And this helps to children to learn how to hear God's voice. Uh, then skip a few. I wrote a trilogy. A more Christ-like God, a more Christ-like way, and a more Christ-like word. I don't have copies of more Christ-like God with me, but a more Christ-like way is, is a more beautiful faith. It's talking about some of four counterfeits to authentic faith that are really ruining the church right now. And then seven uh, aspects of radical discipleship, the Jesus way of being Christian. And so um, that's a more Christ-like way. We're doing a more Christ-like word. Uh, here was a fun thing. The central section of this book was a bit too much for my publisher. And, and they said it's beyond the pale. So I just took that part out and wrote my own book. It's called Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb. And it's, it's about how the, seeing how Christ is at work outside the church, you don't have to water down your vision of Jesus. In fact, the higher your view of Jesus, the more you see him at work everywhere. Including with my Jesus-following Muslim friend, Safi Kaska. My... The, the Sikh community where I see the light of Christ shining. What are you doing in there? 
But, but it's not that I water down Jesus to see it. It's that he, he's just so expansive. And so I've got a theology about how Peter encounters Cornelius and God tells him before he's a Christian that Cornelius is a righteous man, acceptable by God, and that God hears his prayers and sees his good works. But Peter doesn't say, oh, good, then you don't need to know Jesus. He's like, oh, good, let me tell you about Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit falls on him. So there's a lot going on, but he actually validates the man's spiritual experiences and, and, his, and his prayer life before he knows God but then he connects it to the Jesus story in a way that radically deepens it. So i got lots of stories about that to go with the theology. Uh, backwards in time, when we did this um, more, can, we did the Can You Hear Me book, I was doing a lot of conferences on it, and I noticed people coming to the conference like four or five times. I'm like, this isn't healthy. You're becoming a conference junkie. Why, why do you need to be here the fifth time? And they're like, well, but you, you ask questions that help us hear better. I'm like, well, then here's what I'm going to do. I went back to my church. I got our intercessors together. And I said, come up with 40 questions to ask God. Then I asked my wife to spend the next 40 days asking one question a day and journaling what she was hearing. And she wrote a book about it, Rivers from Eden. And it's, it's an old book that is still really, really, really fresh. So just wanted to tell you about that. We have those for sale in the back. All right, so remember in the early part of the talk, I was a little grumpy about like you had conservatives and liberals both trying to use 19th century rationalism in the same court as codependent twins. And what they were doing is they were sharing some assumptions about how you can master the book. Well, now I want to share some of the assumptions of the early church about, especially about the inspiration of scriptures. And these might surprise you. We'll see. First thing around inspiration, Father John Barry is one of the great patristic scholars in the world. Patristic means someone who studies what the early church, fathers and mothers, the, the disciples of the disciples, actually wrote and taught. And he said, the passion of Jesus. Remember on the road to Emmaus, what does Jesus show them? How the scriptures point to his death and resurrection. He must suffer and then enter his glory. So that's the, what we mean by the passion of Jesus. The whole Easter weekend. The passion of Jesus is the key to reading scripture. It's like the cipher that breaks the code so you can see it speaking back to that same passion. And he said four ancient assumptions that characterize the early church's reading of Scripture um, will, will refocus how we come to see inspiration. So I think we've really been heavy duty into the inspiration of Scripture, but in a kind of modern way. And I'd like us to just consider the ancient way of seeing inspiration. So, number one, and here's a surprise, the Scriptures are cryptic. That means, well, what's cryptic mean? Anyone want to give me a definition from the hip? Mysterious, obscure. One thing can mean another thing. 
And, and if they're cryptic, then that means there's something that needs to be opened. And they're locked to us if you don't have the key. And you can you could read and even memorize all of the scriptures and then spend three and a half years with Jesus, but if you don't use the passion of the Christ as your key, you won't be able to unlock what it meant and how it is a testimony and uh, of uh, pointing to, to Christ. So he's, uh, Bear puts it this way, there is a veil that needs to be lifted. Everyone reads scriptures, who read the scriptures before the Passion of the Christ, but nobody could actually see this point. They have to be opened, and they are opened on the road to Emmaus. He was even trying to tell them that earlier. He would say about, about, you say you believe in Moses, but if you believed in Moses, you'd believe me because Moses was writing about me, and they don't get it. But now, after his resurrection, the passion of the Christ is the key that unlocks the, um, or removes the veil from our eyes, from our hearts, from the scriptures, whatever. Now we get to see what they're about. Number two, the scriptures are contemporary. So I just had a chat during the break with a wonderful gentleman who said, you know what, I used to think it was like blasphemy or plagiarism or something if I applied the scriptures to me. And you know, there were times I was even told something like that in college. They would say, um, these aren't really about you. What you have to do is use the literal, grammatical, historical approach to find out how they were about somebody else. That it was the word of God to somebody else. And then what you do is maybe you can get principles from it and apply it to your life. And even that can feel like you're stretching it. But I know a lot of you with your Bible, I can see a Bible there with highlighting in it. You know what that tells me? God was speaking to you through it. That it was, that, and this is what the second point is about, that the scriptures are contemporary, and there's a few layers to that. So the narrative of scripture is not merely history written about the past. According to Christ, what was written is written about now. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me because you wrote of me. Not, Moses wrote of things that happened 10,000 years ago, and now we're going to be in the next stage of the master narrative. No, says Jesus. He wrote of me. Even when he didn't know it. Remember I said the literal sense is all about the author's intent? Well, it depends who the author is, I guess. There were many things that the prophets, the Psalms, were addressing, and they, the author could have had no idea that it's ultimately fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it was. And so, um, the Apostle Paul will add, these things are written for our benefit, upon whom the end of the ages has come. The Scriptures are about Christ. The Scriptures are about you. Archbishop Lazar Pahalo, he's a spiritual father of mine. He's like a monk. He looks like Gandalf. He's written an amazing book that I recommend. 
Um, I don't think I brought a copy, but it's, you can get it on Amazon. It's called The Mirror of Scripture. And the subtitle is this. The Old Testament is about you. It's about the human condition. It's about our failings and our fallings. It's about the things we keep doing as human beings. And, and so, like, I'm, listen, I'm reading the book of Joshua and reading the book of Judges again. Yeah, there's a horrible stuff in those books. Why should I even read it? I'm a Christian now. Because we keep doing the same thing over and over again. It's for our benefit. <coughs> I used to read Job this way. So Job has a little opening session section. And then he's got these foolish friends who come and talk to him for like 29 chapters. And it's just all like wrong. And then you got a conversation between the fourth friend, the fourth friend and, and, uh, and then God, and then you kind of wrap it up. And so, you know, after the first couple times I read Job, I'm like, I'm just going to skip all those wrong chapters. Why would I be filling my mind with wrong? And then after maybe 10 years of not reading those chapters, I read them again. I go, wow, they sound like me. That's why it's in there. For my benefit, so that I can hear the BS coming out of my mouth and recognize that it is. That, that, that when someone's suffering and I say something like, they just said, there's a problem here. Maybe just be quiet or something. Right? And so you, you're going to get a lot of this kind of thing. Um, some of my friends, like, they're just so opposed to reading Joshua because of what Oliver Cromwell did. But I'm like, you know why it's there? It's not glorifying religious violence and genocide. It's critiquing it. It's showing that that triumphalistic narrative that makes us want to go conquer other people is wrong. And it fractures that narrative from the inside. It questions it. And so, and then you, once you begin to see that that's what the author's doing, then you can begin to let it speak to you about how we do the same thing. Remember the, the, the war in Iraq? So much of that was, there, there was a whole narrative around triumphalism and, and that this is what God wants us to do. And we need to go confront the enemy and we need to blow them all away in the name of the Lord. Exact words, Jerry Falwell. And, um, and, and so we need Joshua not as a, like a cheerleader for military conquest in the name of God, but to, but to show how broken that is and how it doesn't work. And where God himself pushes back. I mean, a very, very simple verse in it. It's like Joshua meets the, the, angel, of the, uh, the, the angel of the Lord, the captain of the Lord's armies. He's like, are you on our side or theirs? And he goes, neither. I'm looking for who's on my side. Jesus is still saying that. Oh, okay. So now you begin to read with a different lens and you begin to see how the scriptures are contemporary, how they are about Christ and how they are about me. Um, this is a fun part of reading the Gospels because you're always seeing at least three contexts. So one is this. Jesus 
is talking to somebody like a Pharisee in, let's say, 30 A.D. Okay, that's important. But also, Luke's writing a book to a Christian community. Let's make up a date. Let's say 60 A.D. So now, the message isn't just from Jesus to the Pharisees, but it's also from Jesus to the church Luke is writing to. And it means a little bit something different in that context. If there's a new message, there's something fresh about it, and that fresh thing, you're going to need the Spirit to open it to them. What's your point, Jesus? How is the, what you said to the Pharisees confronting me and my self-righteousness in my little church in 60? And then there's the third context. You, here, tonight, and it's a message for you. This is what we mean by inspired. God is still speaking, and he's still speaking through these texts. And he's still speaking to your heart, and he's still unlocking the book and opening our eyes. So that's pretty exciting. It's very fresh, um, and, and, but you don't want to misuse how you do that. But we'll come back to that. Three, the scriptures are harmonious. So I, was, I grew up in a church where they told me that the Bible was inerrant. That meant to them... Every word is true, and you will never find the Bible contradicting itself. Well, this was a terrible setup. Because then we go off to college. Well, now you can just go on Google, look up contradictions in the Bible. I, I mean, there's 400 on this web page, and they're real. And, and so our teachers would say, well, no, they're not really real. Like, <coughs> you're just interpreting it wrong. Okay. Is Samuel right when it says God tempted David to count his troops? Or is Chronicles right when it says Satan tempted him? Or is James right when he says God tempts nobody? Wait, James is telling us God tempts nobody, but Samuel's saying he does tempt. Oh no, the Bible's not true. Jesus isn't alive. No, relax. These are Jews. Have you never seen them debate? It's amazing. The rabbi, I got to see this in Hebron where Abraham was. I go into a synagogue and the rabbis are around the table and they're yelling all at once. I'm like, what are they doing? They're having a, they're having a dialogue and in that debate, something beautiful and dynamic and powerful is happening and, they, and this is happening in our scriptures. They're allowed to have a conversation. And if in that conversation there's pushback, God wants you to build the temple. No, he doesn't. Prophets in our Bible disagreeing about that. And we freak out if there, we see a contradiction, but the Jews go, no, this is how it works. The people of God are gathered around the Scriptures and we're fighting it out and trying to encounter God, and it's so amazing. And then Jesus shows up and says, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. And by the way, I'm the Word of God. So this is really, really amazing to me that even if you can find 400 contradictions, they're only contradictions if you have a that modernist mind that needs to be scientific and stick the whole puzzle together. 
But if you can think about it as a dynamic conversation among the people of God in the presence of God, then you begin to see that the contradictions aren't the issue, that the scriptures are harmonious, and that's different. They don't speak in unison. They sing in harmony. So, can we find contradictions across the Bible? Of course you can. Let, let it go. But the Emmaus claim, Jesus' claim, is that all the scriptures in some way are speaking about, and, or we could use this word that I'll teach you more about, prefiguring. They prefigure um, the one who opens the book. Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures wrote about how the Son of Man had to die and enter his glory. That's where the harmony is. That's the big ark. And everything in that ark will somehow serve it if we can learn to read it carefully. But it would be like this. Um, well, certainly, all those wrong chapters in Job contradict what God says. He said, by the way, all those chapters, they're wrong. I mean, God himself says it right in the book, right? And you're like, oh, then we should just cut out that section of the book. Really? No. Even the lies are helpful if you understand what they're there for, to warn you from lying, right? And so you have this incredible model, and, and, and it all fits into the big story. So... Can you imagine, I don't know if you're fans of like what your big favorite novels are. Think about the epic novels. Pardon? Lord of the Rings. Oh, you know what? I hate Saruman. He says bad stuff. We should get rid of that from the story. Then it'll be a better story. And Sauron, he's a bad guy. Let's get him out of there. I don't want to read those chapters anymore. And Gollum, get rid of Gollum. He's a, oh, and Wormtongue, he's terrible. Okay, now we've cleaned up the story. We've got rid of all the bad characters. Now it's a safe book. It's also lame. Can you imagine? So my friends are like, I don't like reading the Bible anymore because it's got this chapter. It's like, dude, it's part of the story. And the story's about Jesus. And the whole thing's pointing towards him. But you've got to get there. So don't just pull it out and go, ah, oh, this is terrible. I don't want to read the Bible anymore. Or, ah, oh, the whole Bible's true and it can't contradict itself. So I guess this is okay. No, it's not. It's part of the big arc. The big, the drama of redemption. And the drama of redemption comes to its climax in the passion of the Christ who gathers up all these strands, all these subplots, all these strange genres, and fulfills them in, in himself. And you've got to admit, if you just start thinking about the gospel story, you can't come up with a better story than this. It's so amazing. Think about the characters. Pilate, Caiaphas, Judas, Peter, Mary Magdalene, I mean, the mother of Jesus, the, like the drama, the ups and downs, the close calls, the incredible, awful ending that blows up from the inside into something glorious. And you're like, this really is the greatest story ever told. And it's the most deeply true story so that it even begins 
to infect other stories. We think Lord of the Rings is a great story because it's like the gospel. Star Wars, Harry Potter, you name it. If it's a great epic story, it's, what is it doing? It's just plagiarizing the gospel in some way. And the ways that it doesn't, they're not as good. You know? But like, amazing, amazing, and harmonious when you think of the big picture. So when I went to Bible school, they really liked to emphasize, you know, there's, there, it's not actually one book. It's, it's like 66 books written by many authors over thousands of years and to many occasions, many. And, and I'm like, no, 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 no. When there is a sense in which when my granny sits in her rocking chair with the one book, this is the, it's the story. The whole story. So, and I love to tell the story. But who's the story about? Jesus and? You. You. So we're like, well, Adam and Eve. Who are Adam and Eve? They're you. I don't know if there was a talking, my friend Brian Zani puts it this way. Uh, I don't know if there was a, a, a literal talking serpent, but I sure know I have serpentine thoughts go through my head. Christian faith is when you get to the third sense. Literal, moral, spiritual, or gospel sense. How is it about Jesus? And Jesus comes along with the sign of Jonah. Here's how he reads it. Matthew chapter 12, some of the scribes and Pharisees told Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he replied to them, red letters. An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. If God's real, prove it. Yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What? What's the sign of the prophet Jonah? Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. That's a strange thing to call a tomb, isn't it? The heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh. All those evil empires, all those people from those other bad countries and ideologies and religions, they're going to stand up at the judgment and condemn the people living today because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But look, something greater than Jonah is here. So this is interesting. Jo he sees Jonah as being about him, but it's not just like the same. It's a shadow of something greater. Tomorrow we'll see how it's like an architect's model made out of plastic. What is this? The school for ants? Um, and then it's like, no, it's a model of the greater thing that's coming. And that's what he does. So, um, here's just one example. Jonah chapter 2. This is when Jonah is in the belly of the whale, or fish, or sea creature. And he sings a prayer. Now maybe he literally was singing a prayer from inside the belly of the fish, 
Or maybe the author is creating a, a, a poem to put in his story. It like totally isn't the point. Jesus is the point. And so here's the song. Now the Lord commanded a great whale to swallow up Jonas. Or Jonah, depends on the translation. And Jonas was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. And Jonas prayed to the Lord, his God, out of the belly of the whale and said, I cried in my affliction to the Lord my God, and he listened to me. Even to my cry out of the belly of Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for Hades or hell. Probably just most literally whatever the realm of the dead is. He's crying from the belly of the dead. The, where dead people go. He's dead! In the poem. You heard my voice. Where, where did you hear me? When I cried from the belly of death, he heard my voice. You did cast me into the depths of the heart of the sea. The floods compassed me. All your billows and your waves have passed upon me. And I said, I'm cast out of your presence. Shall I indeed look again towards your holy temple? Water has poured around me to the soul. The lowest, literally last, deep compassed me. What's the lowest deep? What's the last deep? My head went down to the clefts of the mountains. Wait, I thought you were in a fish. No, I'm in the belly of Sheol, and my head went down into the clefts of the mountains. Oh, you mean like the heart of the earth? Whose bars are everlasting barriers until they're not. So we're like, oh no, he's gone to everlasting torment in the belly of the earth. And it's everlasting so he can't come back, except he does. Yet, O Lord, my God, let my ruined life be restored. And when my soul was failing, may I remember the Lord and may my prayer come to you into your holy temple. They that observe vanities and lies have forsaken their own mercies. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of praise and thanksgiving. All that I have vowed I will pay to you, the Lord of my salvation. And the whale was commanded by the Lord and it cast up Jonas on dry land. So, Jesus is reading Jonah. He says, wow, this is about me. This is anticipating me going down into the depths. As um, the Apostles' Creed say, he, he, di he, he um, died and was buried. He descended into Hades. Or actually, in, in Latin, it's like the inferno. And then he raised, he's raised from the dead. And in all of the ancient hymns, it's, and he raised humankind up with himself. What? So it, Jesus is seeing such riches here that are pointing to him. And, he's, and, and the early church comes along and they go, we want to learn how to read like you do. We want to... And do you see... Like, you have to just read it carefully. And so that literal, grammatical, historical portion, oh yeah, that matters, 
But it's like the orange peel that gets you to the juicy food, you know? And, um, and so that's one example of how Jesus himself shows us the Emmaus way of reading the scriptures. And it just comes alive. And, it's a, and yeah, it's about Nineveh, but yeah, it's about your enemies, but whoa, it's about Jesus. Testifying of him. And, and so you get all these stories like this. And then boom, they explode in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, um, and he gets to be the Savior, your Savior, Nineveh's Savior, Savior of the world, according to the Samaritan. Well, let's see. That was the end of the slideshow. We've got four minutes left. I want you just to think about a story in the Bible and how it could be about, how, how it could have hints of Jesus and hints of you. Can you think of any stories in the Bible where someone stretches out his hands like Jesus stretched his hands out on the cross? When did that happen? Hmm? Moses does that? Comes to the Red Sea. Oh, what's this sign? Moses in, in that one battle. The guys hold his hands up. And sometimes it's just like the Jesus story is so much better that it's almost opposite. Samson pushing down the pillars to destroy his enemies. Jesus pushing down the pillars of Hades from the cross to save his enemies. Father, forgive them. And so it can be a, a shadow and even a contrast, but it's still pointing, pointing, pointing. And... Uh, as high as the heavens are the earth, as wide, far as the east is from the west. Isaiah asks, now look at the cross. Isaiah asks, are his arms too short to save? No. Right? And so you begin to see these shadows. And what is casting the shadow? Christ himself. Casting the shadow backwards. The prophecies of, don't, of Jesus don't make crucifixion and resurrection happen. The crucifixion and the resurrection make the prophecies happen. You understand that? It's him casting his shadow backwards and forwards on the prophets and on Moses and on the Psalms and on you and on you, Glenn, you know, Steve. And um, so I just want to pray a thank you at the end of the night. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, thank you for all you've done for us. In opening the scriptures, in opening our hearts, in pointing to your death and resurrection as the greatest story ever told because it's our story and you're saving us. And so we pray that you'd continue to do that even uh, tonight and tomorrow, that you would, you would reveal yourself to us through this beautiful um, thing we call our Bible. And that in so doing, you would become our final authority for faith and practice. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. Thanks, Brad. That's a great start. And we get to get back at it tomorrow at 10 a.m. So 10 to 12 will be one session, then one till three. Uh, one of the things, if you want to be thinking about questions for the end of the session uh, tomorrow, the mics are going to stay in the aisle. And so if there's questions that you're having, Brad likes being asked questions. Yeah. I get to sit in classrooms with him and we all ask a bunch of questions. It's really fun. Uh, so come with questions and uh, we'll have more conversation around that. Um, some of you have paid for lunch tomorrow. That's here for those that haven't. Uh, grab lunch tomorrow when you're here. That'll make more sense tomorrow. But that had to be purchased in advance when you registered. Um, so again, 10 o'clock tomorrow. Hope to see you back and we'll continue our conversations with Brad. Thanks everyone. Have a great evening.